Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Listen to every MLB game live. The deep left center field, it is high, it is far, it is high. Stream minor league affiliates. The Midwest League home run leader. Watch the best baseball highlights and look-ins on MLB Big Inning. MLB at-bat is your all-in-one live baseball subscription for only $3.99 per month. Deep left field. It's going to go. Alvarez ties the game. Subscribe to at-bat within the MLB app today. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Well, hi again, everyone. I'm 1010 Wins Sports Director Mark Ernay. This is On the Mark. We check into the stories behind the stories in the world of sports. Our guest today, as we take a little peek into the book nook, is Katrina Adams. She has been a professional tennis player. She made history as the first ever African-American chair and USTA president, also the first ever two-term head of that sports American governing body. She's been involved in overseeing international tennis, uh, currently heads up a very notable junior tennis and education program up in Harlem, In addition, a global speaker, a broadcaster. She has analyzed matches for multiple outlets, including the Tennis Channel, U.S. Open Radio, the World Feed, and is also a co-host of CBS Sports Network's very popular We Need to Talk, which I only just this morning realized is coming up on seven years old. And now she's an author. The book is called Own the Arena, Getting Ahead, Making a Difference, and Succeeding as the Only One. It's published by HarperCollins. It's available wherever you can find books. And we welcome Kat Adams to On the Mark. So nice to see you. So nice to have you on. How are you? I'm great, Mark. Thanks for having me. That was such a flowery introduction. We only have about three minutes left now. (laughs) (laughs) That was extensive. I will say that. So you... uh... This is your, well. I, I wanted to make sure I covered everything, uh, not to make it a Wikipedia entry or anything. But uh, so now you're an author. In addition to everything you've done and are doing, uh, so my first question really is: is why the book and why now? Yeah, you know, actually, this book was supposed to come out in July of 2020, but it was delayed by the publisher due to the uh, COVID pandemic they weren't selling books because all the book bookstores were closed. Everything was closed. And so they had a warehouse full of books that they couldn't move and they delayed me uh, until now. Um, but it's a, it's a book that I really had no intention of writing. Uh, people were urging me and nudging me to write a book probably the last five years um, as they felt that I had a story to, to share and that was interesting and that, you know, really could inspire others. And Everything I do is about making a difference and bringing back and paying it forward. And once I decided to say yes, this was the direction that the book was going in. Uh, I had the faith of a literary agent that that uh, took me under her wing and, and the confidence of HarperCollins Publishing, the Amistad Books imprint, to actually, actually publish it. And here we are. So hopefully it's a book that is easy to read but that anyone who's reading it can can find themselves in it in, in some way. 
I will attest it is a terrific read. Not surprisingly, many tennis references throughout, including uh, on several chapter names, quotations from uh, several renowned tennis players. And I have to right off the bat, thank you for teaching me, I can't believe I didn't know this, the origin of the word tennis. I studied, I'm not going to give it away, I studied that language, though, for the better part of nine years, and it never came up. Well, that, you know, I had to do a little research on that one, but, um, but yeah, it's important. I think it, and it really, it really explains the sport, it explains me and explains everything that I've done um, within this arena. So chapter one begins, Serena, Naomi, 2018 U.S. Open final. And I got the sense, please correct me if I'm wrong, that you were approaching the reliving of that episode almost like ripping off a Band-Aid just to get it over with because you, you couldn't know, duck it. It's something that has followed me since that moment. But I also thought it was something that one was riveting, compelling, and it was an opportunity for me to really kind of give uh, some background information on, on that event. Um, as I said, this was written in 2019. So it was fairly fresh when uh, I started to write this. And of course, a couple years later, I didn't know how it was going to, uh, to play off, but then, you know, every time they play, they bring up that moment and they just played a couple of weeks ago in Australia at the Australian Open. So it's, it's always, it's always fresh, but it was important for me to tell my point of view, um, you know, and, and to let people know what happened, what was said, why it was said and the intent behind it, because uh, my, my words, my comments were, uh, were misconstrued, taken out of context and, and it's okay because we, you know when I do listen back, I can I can see why people felt one way or another, and um, and so I thought it was important to get it out there. Given that at the time of last year's U.S. Open, you were the one of the past presidents of the USTA, how relieved were you when the Novak Djokovic situation occurred that you did not have to deal directly with that? Yeah, there was a lot of things that happened last year regarding the U.S. Open that I was relieved that I didn't have to deal with it. And that was first starting with getting the tournament on um, the work that went into it and the hours that were, uh, you know, consumed by everybody involved just to get it going. And then you have the incident with Novak. And I was actually calling an, another match and happened to look down I'm in the um, skyboxes of Arthur Ashe Stadium calling another match on the monitor and I kind of looked down to see what's going on and uh, not having not seen it. And then when I saw the replay, I was like, Oh, I'm so glad it's not me. Um, because that's just not a place. It's not a place that you want to be particularly as a, for a past player, because you have relationships with, with all of these players. Right. And uh, so Pat knows Novak very well. And um, so it was, definitely wasn't a position that he wanted to be in. But the rules are the rules. And this was something that was uh, black and white. It wasn't something that, you know, had room for, for error or, you know, for movement to uh, kind of dismiss. So I, I thought it was interesting because that conversation came up again about the rules being the rules. And a lot of people were immediately transported back to the women's final two years earlier. And I, and I, I, was, I was struck by the, you know, the similarity to a degree of the uh, of the situation 
Uh, I wanted to ask, because there are so many parallels that you draw between the tennis world and the business world, when did you know that you wanted to be involved in the administrative side of tennis? You know, when I joined the WTA tour in 1988, um, I immediately got involved on the business side by joining the players uh, associations board. And, and so I wanted to learn more about the sport. I wanted to learn more about how it operated. Wanted to learn more about um, our rights as players. And so being on that WTA players uh, association board for a few years, and then we uh, merged the players and the, the business side to the WTA tour as to what it is today. I then got to sit on that board, which had all the business people from the tournaments and from the ITF and um, et cetera. So I was always intrigued by, by it, but I really didn't know that I wanted to go into the business side of it. And the USCA is structured very differently of how I got on the board in 2005. You apply, you do interviews, and, and um, I was nominated to the board as an elite athlete. Uh, we are a national governing body uh, of the USOPC. And so you have to have a certain percentage of elite athletes, athletes that are within 10 years of retirement from their sport. I retired mm -hmm. in 99, I joined the board in 05. And so when my tenure uh, expired in 09 and it was time to re-up for the board, then I had to go in with the pool of everyone else in the nation. You know, mm -hmm. all these, these smart business people who were volunteers that wanted to get back to the sport and be a part of it. And I didn't, frankly, I didn't know if I would be able to uh, get to that level. And once I was nominated and, and I felt that my words, you know, that I had value, added value in the room and respected in the room, then I was like, hmm. So I started to look at it from a different lens and, and started to develop that from that moment. So what was it like? Because we can imagine perhaps life as a USTA president and chairman, but very few of us can imagine life as the first African-American USTA chair and president. So what was that all like for you? Well, you know, I like to go into anything as, as I'm here to succeed and to do a job, et cetera. But I did know, I, you know, I knew the, enorm the enormity of that moment and, and how huge it was and, and what it represented. Uh, prior to me even becoming an officer, we only had one, one person, uh, a black person that was an officer of the USTA, and that was Dwight Mosley way back in the early 90s when I was still on tour. And, and so just when I became a vice president, I knew that that added levity and weight. So when I became the chairman, I knew that I not only represented myself and the organization, but I represented an entire culture of people who were rooting for me. Because my thing is, you know, Billie Jean always says, Billie Jean King always says, if you can see it, you know, you can believe it. And now here I am, that face of the organization to where a lot of other people can now see it to believe that they can also be in that position whether it's in the USCA or any business that had never had a person of color, a black woman at the head of that organization. And so uh, it meant a lot to me. 
I've had the good fortune of being joined by Billie Jean now twice. I think she was the first two-time guest of this show, and I was so happy to see her at the Garden over the weekend for the debut of the Professional Women's uh, Hockey League. Um, she that really is. She she is, I think, the epitome of walk the walk. Oh, my goodness. I mean, every day she is about, you know, it's really about equality and, and about and about being um, respected, no matter what she's representing. And she doesn't commit to do anything that she doesn't truly believe in. And she won't say anything that are not her words or that's not in her heart. And, you know, she's a woman that has always done her research on everything. Um, One of the most knowledgeable women that I know uh, across all platforms and um, what she represents and what she's accomplished you know, is is we all, you know, pay homage to the great Billie Jean King. Well, you are no slouch in the accomplishment department, Cat Adams. You oversaw, as you called it in the book, the complete rebuild of the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center out in Queens, which included the installation of the roof over Arthur Ashe, the new Louis Armstrong Stadium, the new grandstand, and everything else that goes around uh, that goes on on that campus and uh, the national campus itself uh, down in Orlando. Uh, what do you consider over the course of your two two-year terms, which was a first as the chairman and president of the USTA, your biggest accomplishment? Well, the biggest accomplishment was just getting there. Uh, but, you know, all the things that happened under my tenure, uh, you know, I have to to applaud my board of directors, um, both boards that I that I oversaw and that I led, um, because you know collectively we make these decisions as to how we move forward and what we do within the organization. And then you have to applaud the staff because the staff is really the people from all these different areas that are carrying out their task and making things happen. So when you look at the uh, USA Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, Danny Zausner is the chief executive out there. And so all of this really falls underneath him. I'm, I was there to support and, and provide oversight where needed. Uh, Gordon Smith, who was our COO, executive director at the time, uh, also was in there day to day, you know, making sure that everything was uh, occurring. And so I always say it's a teamwork. It's not just one person. And these were things that have been in place for years that fell under my overview. And so I was thrilled to be a part of it. Uh, I learned a lot in the process too, because I had nothing, you know, no knowledge about construction whatsoever. But we also had a gentleman, Andy Andrews, who was a developer down in North Carolina, who was my first vice president, who was there every step of the way in making sure that both these projects were uh, also done properly. The place is phenomenal, by the way. And I've been going there since it opened back in the late 70s. And to look at it now and remember how it was when it first opened, it is night and day, to say the least. But it, it's just, it's been, since I was a teenager, my favorite two weeks of the year. And the fact that I get to work there on a regular basis every year, it remains my favorite two weeks of the year for a much different reason. But the the joy and 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 the the gratitude that we had, I think all of us that we were able to get the tournament in last year, 
especially given the the circumstances and the hoops that everybody had to go through, uh, really was uh, remarkable. Uh, if I were to ask you your worst regret in the four years, would it be the German anthem incident at the Fed Cup? That was a, that was an experience. I'm telling you, I'm standing on the court and you know, the anthem's going on and, and I see the reaction of the players and I'm standing next to the German Tennis Federation uh, president and the ITF rep and they're speaking under their breath in German. Uh, and I'm like, okay, something's wrong, but I'm not sure what's wrong because unfortunately I don't speak German. Right. And so, you know, I immediately said, I said, I said what's, what's happening? He goes, oh no, it's okay, it's okay. And, and I said, no, I said, what's, something's wrong. And so he, uh, so when it was over, he says, oh, they just, you know, they, they played a, a much older version of our national anthem. And I said, an older version. And he said, yeah. And I'm, I'm, my brain is churning. And he said, uh, pre-1994. And I just became flush of embarrassment and it was it was something yes i would if i look back um wish it i wish it didn't happen but it you know you learn from your lessons and and you you realize that you really can't cut corners in in anything and uh our team you know our team rectified it our our team referring to our, our staff uh our team of players were also embarrassed once they learned but they didn't know what was happening in that moment it was after the match but I felt bad for the German players right. because they were furious and and understandably so um, to where they really couldn't focus, uh, you know, going out there to do what they were there to do and, and, and play their best tennis. All right. Getting back to a much happier note, how would you want those two terms that you served to be remembered? You know, I, I, I gave it I gave my all. Uh, you know, put my best foot forward every single day. I spent a lot of hours every day in, in representing the USTA. We accomplished a lot. I think we transformed the organization to a degree um, into a better direction. And, you know, and hopefully the seeds that I planted um, are starting to uh, bloom and, and hopefully, you know, grow and, and mature to be, uh, you know, to, to reap the rewards for whatever those, those seeds were. And I want to get back into the book. And again, I promise I won't give away much of the good stuff, but can we please talk about how you were responsible for pretty much giving rise to an actual fashion police squad at Wimbledon? You mean at the U S open? Um, I thought it was, no, I thought it was Wimbledon. Yeah. With the, oh, the you're out, your, squad. your yeah. undergarments when I was playing when I was playing while you were playing. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Wimbledon has a, a, a policy, all white attire on the court, uh, of which every player, you know, you know, you have to do it. But this particular day, my underpants, my tennis panties uh, were multicolored. And so I'm not even thinking about, you know, my tennis panties on this, you know, not being a part of, or being a part of my attire. But it was a uh, blustery day in, in England. And at the time, the uh, shirt, the the material of my skirt was very lightweight, so it constantly blew up. And I was on the front courts, just below outside of center court, 
you know, just below the Royal balcony. And, and, um, anyways, the, uh, I was summoned into, uh, media following the match. And I'm like, why? That wasn't a big match. I'm like, what, 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 what's the deal? And so they were questioning my choice of a, of underpants. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? The next day, you know, every newspaper in England is like a tabloid, right? Right. So every paper, I was like on the back cover with, with my hiney, you know, <laughs> on the back cover with the skirt up with the colorful pants. It, it was comical. I actually have a copy of that to this day. I went into the locker room the very next day and the uh, locker room attendants had it taped on the wall and oh, I was goodness. so embarrassed and it was a fun time. That was interesting because I think a lot of people who can remember that era of Wimbledon remember Robin White and her bodysuit. Anne White. Anne White, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yep. Anne White and her her bodysuit, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was that was the first fashion. That was the first bodysuit that was uh that was worn in our sport. Right. And then there would be more uh, down the road. And of course, Serena has gone uh, the cat suit route. Uh, I want to talk to you about her in just a little bit. Uh, I was also fascinated by your mention of the handshake challenge. And it got me thinking, obviously, over the course of the last year, next week will be a full year since the sports world had shut down, um, that we're all missing this human contact over the course of the pandemic. And I'm wondering, what do you think the odds are that this handshake challenge might finally take hold when things get back to whatever we think will be in air quotes normal. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, the racket tap has taken the place of the handshake and it's just, it's the same gesture. It's acknowledging one another at the end of the match. And, you know, when you think about it, when you first meet someone and you go, what do you do? You, you shake hands, right? When you go into the boxing ring before they start their, their battle, they tap, their their gloves which is in essence like a handshake so we stand at the net with each other before the match for the coin toss there's no harm in tapping the rackets now to say hey have a good match or you know you basically know everybody is beginning of the year you may start to meet new players as we saw emerge here in australia but i I just think it's a good gesture and in sportsmanship um, to do that. So even from our kids, teaching them that, you know, this, yeah, we're going into battle, but at the end of the day, when we walk off the court, you know, that battle is left on the court. So, Hey, let's have a great match. And, uh, even if you don't say anything, or sometimes you're playing someone for the first time, you're introducing yourselves at that point, you know, Hey, I'm Kat. Hey, I'm Mark and whatever it is. But I think it's just something that our sport, um, has gotten so competitive, particularly on the junior level that the sportsmanship has really gone out the door because for them, it's all about winning and it's not about developing and it's not about enjoying the battle. So how can we reel that back in? I would love to be able to, you know, for the tours to, you know, I think the kids do whatever they see their idols do. Right. So if the ATP and the WTA tours collectively can say, Hey guys, let's, let's start to tap rackets at the beginning of the rack at the match, as well as the end. I don't see anybody today 
based on what we've gone through in the last year saying, no, there's no way I'm going to do that because everyone has realized that there are more important things than tennis. And so to just tap that racket at the beginning of the match and then at the end of the match, what are your kids going to do? The kids are going to go out and start tapping rackets. And you know, I, you know, I, I used to mimic John McEnroe a lot when I was growing up, you know, from the service motion, you know, we go out and I was a servant volleyer. So, you know, I, I, you know, come in and shove the, shove the shot and the, you know, the half volleys and whatever, and tugging the shirt and going through the service motion. But I also had a bad temper and, and, you know, they used to call me Jane McEnroe because I had such a bad temper. And I'm, I don't think it was because I was trying to emulate him. It's just the nickname that I got. But just think about it. So if I'm doing that for someone like that, then if I start to see these cats as a kid, you know, tapping rackets, doing the same thing. I used to have a uh, graveyard of broken tennis rackets that I kept in my trunk to remind me that I shouldn't break rackets and, and be like John. Um it, it's it's funny that all of his histrionics have sort of uh, have really never faded from the memory banks. And I know you mentioned the, uh, you know, the you cannot be serious uh, comment that he made, um, which gets played pretty much every year when Wimbledon um, rolls around. One of my other favorite passages from your book talking about tennis, uh, the early days of your doubles partnership with Zena Garrison, who I had the good fortune to work with at the Open last year a little bit. And the great nugget about her, as I was reading this, I'm thinking Pepe Le Pew. And it's exactly what you mentioned. She was being, for lack of a better term, romantically pursued by a a fairly famous musician. And you liken that to uh, Pepe Le Pew going after the the cat, no pun intended, uh, on your name, who was, if you remember, in one of the episodes uh, of the cartoon, was mistakenly painted a black cat painted with a white line down her back to look like a skunk. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. Uh, it was. I thought it was. I thought it was a great analogy. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, we we had some fun times. That was just one of them that that I I thought uh, you know would kind of lighten the the mood of the of the book and 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 get people to reflect in a different way. But uh, it was a very interesting scenario. And I, I just remember she ran like a bat out of hell, um, getting off the court and ducking through the underground of the stadium. And uh, so, it, you know, those were fun times. And you ran interference for her like a good teammate should. Always, always <laughs> had her back. So, um, Final chapter, you mentioned internships. There was a fairly decent sized brouhaha on social media this week. I don't know if you caught it about unpaid internships and, and uh, a reporter for NFL network uh, for the uninitiated had put out on Twitter that she knew of an internship, uh, a very short term situation, but it was unpaid and she was essentially vilified for trying to solicit uh, free labor. So I'm wondering Given that you had several internships uh, over the course of your um, non-tennis career, what advice would Katrina Adams give to an up-and-comer who wants a foot in the door, be it broadcasting or a boardroom? 
Yeah, I think that the most important thing is if you're passionate about something and it's a field that you want to go in, you need to get the experience. And and I don't want to call it free labor. Um, you know, we we come from I come from a generation where when you got an internship, it wasn't paid, and you you did the work, you learned a lot, you created uh, mentors and, and sponsors within those organizations because that's an experience that you can't get back if you don't have or you can't get if you don't have that type of uh, opportunity to be an intern. Um, and yes, you know, there's a lot of paid internships, but you really need to understand what your destiny is, what is it that you wanna do, what you wanna accomplish, and be willing to put the, the hard work in because it doesn't happen overnight. And if you are just, you know, you, I feel that this generation wants to go from A to Z in a week. And, you know, yes, they have a lot more information at their fingertips. They're able to learn a lot quicker than we were back in our day or than we did back in our day. But it's still a process of developing. Just like a tennis player, you have to develop. It's not about winning. It's about developing your game for the long term so that you can win. Winning in your early years does not mean you're going to win in the latter years if you don't develop every aspect of your game. So it's also the same thing in business. You know, you're not going to win long term if you're only focusing on winning now and you have to take the the bumps and the bruises that come with it. So that's my advice. Now, you grew up in Chicago. You wound up going to Northwestern, playing on the tennis team at Northwestern. But I know you mentioned in the book that um, USC and UCLA were your top choices. I'm wondering, how do you think your life would have been different had you gone out west to play tennis instead of staying closer to home? That's a very good question, Mark. I always, I'm the type of person that says I look back and I have no regrets because everything that I did got me to where I am today. So had I gone West or any other school, I might not have gone on the same track. You know, Northwestern was a top 10 school when I went there, as was SC and UCLA. They were also in the top 10, but I came in and played number one at NU probably wouldn't have gone in and played number one at SC or UCLA at that time. Um, I'm not sure I would have had to play my way on. And, you know, I didn't know if the coach would have let a freshman come in, even if I had won the matches to do that. So my opportunities uh, were what they were. I don't look back and regret it, but I, you know, I just thought it was a great story um, to add in there for a number different, uh, a number of reasons. And um, you know, Thank God I'm a Wildcat. <laughs> Would you talk to me a little bit for the benefit of our New York City audience about your endeavors up at the uh, the facility in Harlem? Yeah, so I'm the executive director of the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program. Um, we are an NJTL chapter, National Junior Tennis and Learning Network. Uh, there are a few hundred chapters around the country um, NJTL was co-founded by Arthur Ashe, Charlie Passarell, and Sheridan Snyder back in 1969. And so we focus on getting kids on the court, providing them um, academic opportunities and wellness initiatives where or components. So we, you know, yeah, we'd love to develop the next uh, Serena Williams. Um, but 
we would we're more successful in making sure that that kid graduates from high school and then gets into college. And whether it's on a tennis scholarship or on an academic scholarship, or just being able to put tennis on their CV so that they have an opportunity to get into college. And, and I've been there 15 years. We will, we will be celebrating our 50th anniversary next year in 2022. Um, and we're, you know, we're a nonprofit organization who raises money to provide low cost uh, opportunities for our kids. So you know, we, we apply for grants, um, we ask for individual donations and have fundraisers to uh, attain that. And Kat, how did the pandemic affect what goes on there on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, no, we were shut down for quite some time. We operate out of the Army on 143rd Street, and our landlord is the Harlem Children's Zone, uh, which, as you know, operates a couple of schools there in Harlem right. and other uh, exterior programs. So we were out of our facility until literally a week ago. We were we had to rent courts at another facility just to get our kids back on the court um, and our staff back at work. And, you know, it cost us, but, you know, we weren't getting the donations that we would have liked. We, we couldn't have our, our annual gala, which is 40% of our budget. So we struggled and continue to struggle to just get back on our feet, but we're thrilled to be back at home. We're thrilled to see the kids on the court. Uh, we are working at half capacity, a little less than half capacity because of the uh, COVID protocols. And so um, it's challenging, but at the end of the day, seeing the excitement of the kids, the development, their growth, you know, getting them back active, first of all, yeah. getting exercise, it's helping them and it's definitely helping their parents. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Uh, for the sake of those who might want to get involved, whether it's uh, to volunteer, when the opportunity arises, and hopefully that won't be too far down the road, or to um, help out financially, which at this point might be of uh, greater importance, uh, how can folks uh, reach out and, and do exactly that? Uh, thanks for asking. You can go to our website, www.hjtep.org. That stands for Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program. Uh, you know, click on the Make a Donation um, button and make a donation. Um, every dollar counts. It's not that you have to make an enormous donation. We, we love those that want to contribute a lot, but you know, we're really serving our youth, serving our community and um, providing a safe place for our kids to, uh, to grow and develop. All right. And as we wrap up, I do appreciate all of the time today. Uh, what can we do Madam past president of the USTA to get more people, not only to play tennis, but to pay attention to tennis on TV and radio and, you know, and get to the tournaments, not just the U S open and the grand slam events, but you know, some of the other smaller events that we have, and we have several in the area, uh, at least under normal circumstances. Yeah. Well, I will say the flip side of the, of the pandemic last year allowed, you know, the good side of the pandemic is that a lot of people started playing tennis again. They either picked up a racket for the first time or picked up the racket that they hadn't, you know, touched in, in many years, uh, started going back to the public parks and to their community courts because it was, it's a safe sport to play. Uh, it, it automatically provides distance between each other. You only have two, four players max on a court. And so, you know, it was the first sport that 
the governor here in New York said, hey, tennis can start to play again. Let's put those nets back up. Let's get everybody back out there. And so that started a boom that we hadn't seen and, and a growth that we hadn't seen in many, many years, which is exciting. But the important thing is that those people who have gotten back in the sport or have gotten into sport for the first time have programs that they can go to, whether they continue to be in the, their park and recreation facilities, whether they're in tennis clubs, et cetera. You know, we want to make sure that you understand the healthy benefits of the sport. It is a sport for a lifetime, whether you're, you know, six or 106, okay, maybe 96. Um, but you, get out, you can get out there and play and, and, and make sure that you are, um, you know, still being socially distanced where, where necessary. And, um, you know, look in your, you can go to usda.com to find out for local pro circuit events that may be coming to your area. These are the early stages of professional tennis. Uh, it's a level that I started in. And there are a lot of small market, small market towns and cities. Go out and watch. And, you know, and you, you never know if you're going to be watching the next Serena Williams or the next Novak Djokovic. And, um, you know, these, these kids are, are, these players are great. You know, you look at Jen Brady, who got to the finals of the Australian Open, played at UCLA. Uh, you know, she started on the pro circuit series like everybody else to, to, to develop the ranking. So please support them. I know we've had the New York Open here out at Nassau Coliseum um, in February. I'm not sure if it's happening this year, but there are smaller events in the New York area outside of the U.S. Open. Yeah, we've had some tournaments in the Bronx over the years. The Long Island Open was a, a, a preview, if you will, or a, a warm-up tournament for the U.S. Open. We had the tournament in New Haven for several years. There was one in Mawa, New Jersey. I don't know if you ever played in that one. but played that uh, one. John Cork, yeah. That, that was a lot of fun uh, up there on Route 17 at the uh, crossroads. Um, we opened with Serena and Naomi. I think it's a good place for us to start to wrap up because they met, as you mentioned, in the semifinals in Melbourne, uh, and Serena came up short again. So it's now you know four calendar years since she won her last major, and she's still one away from the all-time singles major title record. Do you think she gets there? Let's uh, put your broadcaster cap back on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's getting tougher and tougher because each day she's getting older and older. But I will say that, you know, the Serena Williams that we saw in Melbourne a few weeks ago was the best Serena Williams that we've seen in four years since she won uh, the Australian Open uh, in 20, what was it, 17? 17, yeah. 17. So, um, you know, I, I you can never count her out in the draw. And, and I think it's a situation of her continuing to play at her best and perhaps the draw starting to open up with some of these big players like Osaka getting knocked out before they have to read um, that she would have to play them. But, you know, when I was watching the matches here in the middle of the night um, last month, you know, she played three matches in a row that could have easily been a final with uh, Sabalenka from Belarus, Simona Halep, who she destroyed um, in the quarters. And then of course came up against a very informed Osaka and yeah. Serena did not play nearly the caliber of tennis that she had played in those previous matches leading up to that. So, you know, she can bring her best against in Osaka. 
you know, I, I'd love to see that match where they're both at their best, but Naomi is just a remarkable player and re- reminds me a lot of Serena when Serena was her age, um, a better version of Serena actually when um, Serena was her age. And so I hope she can get it, but you know, it takes a lot of, not a lot of, not only just the physical drain from Serena, but the mental drain of trying to keep it together and knowing that it's, you know, she can reach out and touch it, but yet hasn't been able to achieve it. Yeah. Now people have asked me and I simply refer them to the math. They ask if Naomi at four and she's four for four in major finals can catch Serena, let alone Margaret Court. Um, and again, I just refer to the math. You know, four is a long way from 23, and we're seeing how far 23 is from 24. Do you think there's anyone out there right now who can catch Serena? Well, I would say at this point it would be Naomi. If Naomi, does, you know, doing the math, I mean, look, Serena two years, two years in a row won four in a row, but just in different calendar years. She had two Serena slams. Right. So Naomi is that player right now that can do that. I mean, she's playing without much confidence, but she has the game to do it. So it's a matter of her staying healthy. Just think of all the years that Serena didn't play. You know, she was out with injury or, you know, she lost her sister one year. And, you know, just think if she did play in those years in some of those tournaments, she probably would be at 30 by now. But I think if there's one player that can do it, it would be Osaka. And on the men's side, somebody brought up a stat the other day. I can't even remember now how many years it's been running, but the top two players in the rankings have either been Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, or Murray for, I I think it's going on 12 or 13 years. It's a lot. And maybe more. Can you fathom how that's possible? Well, I think it's remarkable because I, I, I go back, you know, the generation before them when we had, you know, Pete and Courier and Agassi and Chang who happened to all be American um, who were at the top of the game at that time. And, you know, when Pete surpassed Roy Emerson, you were like, Oh, wow, that, that'll never happen again. And, and we're seven grand slams beyond that or, six grand slams beyond that with, yeah. with Roger. So um, it'll be a generation in another, in a, in a different life. I think lifetime, uh, I don't think I'll be around to see that kind of dominance in, in the men's sport. Again, if that, if that happens, there are a lot of great players that are coming up. When you look at Medvedev and Rublev in particular and, and Tsitsipas, you know, you're saying, okay, these are going to be the next big three. Um, put Sasha's rev in there when he wants to decide to be consistent. Um, you know, those are your next big four guys. And I'm just not sure if they're going to be trading back and forth, you know, in the next five years when, um, when Rafa and, and Roger and Andy and Novak are gone. And uh, yeah, I don't see that happening again. So the big three have 59 between them. <laughs> Nole is one back after winning in Australia. Um, again, your broadcaster cap on, please. Um, who winds up in the end 
with the most majors of those three? Uh, it'll be Novak because he has the ability to play on all surfaces. So, I mean, he can, you know, he can win on clay. He can win on grass. He can win on um, hard. And, you know, Rafa, you know, with his knees, you know, just call him Mr. Roland Garros. He'll win Roland Garros again in 2021. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I don't see him winning Wimbledon or, you know, the U.S. And, you know, he didn't play it last year. And so we'll see. It's amazing, isn't it, that they have so many between them? And and I think, and I've said this for a few years now, that even though Novak has a winning record against both of those guys, he's still not in the conversation for a lot of people of that GOAT category, greatest of all time. Yeah, it's, uh, it's challenging. I mean, he will. You know, I think personality has a lot to do with it. And I think when, when Novak came on the scene in his early years, a lot of people just didn't like his disposition on the court. Um, you know, we felt that he had a lot of antics. He had a lot of stalling. You know, remember he had the breathing issue early on, of which he did further go and get that sinus um, surgery that was needed to help out. But it was just... Uh, his behavior, if you will, that a lot of people just were not fond of, of Novak. And obviously, you know, Roger is, is Mr. Gentleman and um, everybody loves Roger. Everyone's become to love Rafa. Uh, He's comical. He's, you know, he speaks from the heart. He's passionate, the same passion that Novak has, but I think there's just a lot of other side effects, if you will, where people, didn't like early on and it's hard for him to kind of be in that same category um you know with those two it's funny when he came on the scene as you were alluding to the uh, the antics included his uh, impressions and i think some of us you know I, th- I think the spectators especially got a kick out of some of them the maria sharapova impression the the rafa impression when rafa was wearing the capris and and would have them ride up a little bit um, and I can see where some players and, and former players like yourself might not have taken uh, too kindly to that. So I, I, I appreciate it. And, and I think it's, you know, personality. I think I think it was a breath of fresh air to have someone come out with with that type of personality, uh, you know, in the comical sense. But there were other things in his matches that um, that stood out. But right. listen, you cannot take away the talent that Novak Djokovic has. You cannot deny the professionalism of how he trains, how he takes care of his body and how he approaches the sport. Uh, I respect his game immensely. I, I think it's incredible the way that he can move around the court, the flexibility that he has. Um, I mean, he's amazing and he will be that player that will, you know, probably surpass both Roger and Rafa but Roger always my favorite. <laughs> we are wrapping up with Katrina Adams. She is, uh, among other things, a uh, broadcaster, um, an author. The book is Own the Arena, Getting Ahead, Making a Difference, and Succeeding as the Only One. It's from HarperCollins, and again, you can find it wherever you find books. Hey, Kat, as we wrap up, uh, what do you want readers to take away from the book? Mark, great question. You know, it's, I I think everyone can find themselves in the book. You need to recognize that you own your own destiny. If you allow yourself to dream big, to work hard and, and take responsibility and be accountable for how you're developing yourself. And so it's a, it's a book for all ages, gender, race, ethnicity, et cetera. And, um, 
you know, I, I, hopefully you will fi find your <clears throat> yourself owning your own arena, whatever it's space that might be. I appreciate the time. Thanks so much for doing this. And I, I can't wait to see you in Flushing. And hopefully we won't have to socially distance. We'll be able to take the tennis court together and, and maybe we'll get to call some matches together for a change. That would be great. That would be great. Thanks a lot, Mark. Appreciate Look, it. Looking forward to it. I'm Mark Ernay. That is the incredible Katrina Adams. And you're on the mark. Listen to every MLB game live. The deep left center field. It is high. It is far. It is gone. Stream minor league affiliates. The Midwest League home run leader. And watch the best baseball highlights and look-ins on MLB Big Inning. MLB at bat is your all-in-one live baseball subscription for only $3.99 per month. Deep left field. It's going to go. Alvarez ties the game. Subscribe to at bat within the MLB app today. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.